0: Littleton Chambers Sports Law Podcast. My name's Graham Anderson and I'm one of the barristers here at Littleton Chambers and I'm delighted to be joined by Andrew Nixon who heads up the sports group at Sheridan's and my colleague Catherine at Littleton Chambers. And today we're going to talk about the most prominent topic in the news, that's Brexit, and the most prominent topic in all of our practices, that's sports law. <music> Sports law is heavily dominated, I think we'll all agree, by the rules of the European Union, at least for as long as we remain in the European Union. It's specifically referred to in the Treaty of Lisbon, Article 165. We know that competition law applies to the sports industry, state aid rules apply, but perhaps of greatest importance, and that's what I hope we're going to talk about today, are the free movement rules. So Catherine, can you... Can you just explain, before we get stuck into the nitty-gritty, how important the free market rules on free movement are in sports law?
1: Well, EU free movement law has had a fundamental impact, both on the um, law in this area, but also in the development of sport over the last 30, 40 years. For example, that famous Bosman ruling echoes strongly through sports law. Um, For instance, who plays for which teams the ways in which homegrown player rules um, are debated and um, when they can be lawful, and the systems in place, for instance, FIFA transfer management system.
0: Great, but we'll come back to Bosman in a moment. The constant refrain that we hear in the media about about Brexit is, "Gosh, well, it's all terribly uncertain. I don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen." But I'm hoping we can do a little bit better than that. Not through crystal ball gazing necessarily, but some educated guesses based on where we're likely to go with with free movement after we've left the EU. What we don't know is precisely what free movement rights EU citizens are going to have to come to and from whatever remains of the UK when the dust set. But, but Catherine, can you really foresee a set of circumstances in which half the Premier League, for instance, suddenly you know, requires work permits and suddenly can't play in England?
1: Um, well, Graeme, I'd be surprised if the impact was sudden, um, but it's understandable that particularly EU national players, currently resident in the UK, are asking questions about whether they'll be permitted to remain and, when they'll, and whether they'll continue to have the right to work. I suppose the first point to make is that the UK is still in the EU, and it will still be in the EU once Article 50 is triggered, which it hadn't been yet. Now, Article 50 provides for a period of negotiation which, unless the other member states agree to extend it, will automatically leave to the UK, leaving the EU two years after that provision has been triggered. Now, there are currently several sets of judicial review proceedings pending before the courts in which it's being argued that Article 50 cannot be triggered lawfully under our UK domestic law arrangements without Parliament's approval. And there was a hearing um, yesterday, which was the 20th of July. Um, The lead case is going to be brought by someone called Miss Miller, uh, yesterday in that hearing, as I understand it, the government's counsel, um, who's Jason Koppel QC, um, gave an undertaking to the court that Article 50 wouldn't be triggered until after the new year. So case management directions have been put in place for that case to be heard with a leapfrog appeal to the Supreme Court um, before Christmas of this year. Now the second question is what the UK's negotiation position actually will be. And this is an area where I very much doubt that we can trust very much what um, uh, both sides will actually be saying publicly over the next several months. It will presumably be in the UK's interest to sound very tough, as it also will be from the EU side, um, during which time I imagine all sorts of back-channeling um, will be going, um, uh, going on. Mm-hmm. What we do know is that the civil service team are currently staffing up. Now, one option which has currently been much canvassed is whether the UK might actually remain a member of the EEA, which is the European Economic Area, which it currently is a member of um, as part of being a member of the EU. And no one's voted to leave that? And no one's voted to leave that. Now, if we stay in the EEA, that will mean that we will be subject to the EFTA court, and that's the so-called Norway option. Uh, The the thing about the EEA agreement is that it does include all of the free movement provisions and also all of competition law. Mm -hmm. So although the treaty numbering would change, um, the legal position, actually particularly in sport, wouldn't substantially change. Although Article 165, which is the provision of the Lisbon Treaty, which specifically mentions sport, as I understand it, isn't in um, the EEA agreement.
0: I mean, the question's going to be, I suppose, what the political will is in terms of being bound by all of this free movement that we supposedly voted to get rid of.
1: Yes, it's, it's difficult from the EU perspective. You can't enter part of it.
0: Mm. Well, Andrew, I'm going to ask you to dive in then. Yeah. Uh, is there, from what what you're hearing from your clients and from, from the people you know in the industry, is there a, a groundswell of, of will to protect the position of the sports leagues, do you think? Are, are, are people really fearing the worst, or do they think, well, it'll be all right in the end?
2: <laughs> Polit- political will? I mean, look, it's a good question. I mean, look, interestingly, whilst it, it's relevant and of great interest to us as lawyers in the sports sector, um, there has in reality been very little discussion and debate uh, on the impact of sport during the lead-up to the vote. It simply hasn't been that high up the political uh, agenda. I do, however, think that as negotiations start, um, that will inevitably change. I mean, the government, for example, is, is bound to engage with the key leagues and governing bodies and rights holders across the major sports to garner and canvass their views and the fact is, while it hasn't yet generated much debate outside of perhaps uh, our world, mm-hmm. sport is, of course, of significant importance in the UK from a social, cultural and economic perspective. So you would anticipate that it will it will find its way up the, the, yep. um, the proverbial political uh, intray. You mentioned fearing the worst. I mean, I think there is, a, I guess, a, a growing consensus in that regard. But I don't think, in reality, we're looking at a doomsday scenario. Yes, in principle, there may be... Um, current Premier League players who could be affected. I think there are about a hundred or so in the Premier League who might fall within that category. But we're not uh, certainly not looking at some uh, sort of sudden deportation of players. And indeed, you know, even if post negotiations we are looking at working restrictions for EU nationals, um, they would not be applied um, retrospectively. And in any event, practically speaking. And Catherine just alluded to it. It's going to take at least two years um, for all of these intricacies to be uh, to be fully ironed out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, let's talk specifically about player transfer rules. Of course, the case everybody knows about, and it's the one Catherine you've already you've already mentioned, is Bosman. The ECJ decision that everybody learns about at university from 1995. Uh, and the facts of that case were: John Mark Bosman was a player for RFC Liège in the Belgian First Division. He wanted to change teams and move to Dunkirk in France and signed terms to that effect. But Dunkirk, the French team, refused to meet Liege's transfer fee demand. So Liege, of course, refused to let him go. And one of the key questions for the ECJs it then was, uh, was whether the treaty precluded the application of rules laid down by sporting associations, under which a professional footballer could not, on the expiry of his contract with a club, be employed by another club elsewhere in the European Union, unless unless the latter club has paid a transfer fee.
1: Yes, yeah, so the Graham of course, Bosman is a, very, is a key case for sports lawyers and it confirmed the application of both competition law and free movement law to the rules of domestic sporting associations. Now, this it wasn't actually new in Bosman, um, but Bosman made it so much more widely known. Now, what was new in Bosman was that the Court of Justice held that free movement law as a whole prohibited a domestic measure, so in that case the Belgian measure, um, such as the Transfer Payment Rule, which precluded or even deterred an EU citizen from moving between member states. Mm. So it didn't have to discriminate between mm. um, EU and member state nationals and, nation- and n- nationals of that member state, so long as it deterred them from moving across borders.
0: So, so in Bolsman it was Article 48, it's now 45 of, of, of the Treaty of the European Union. So, so does, it, does this now mean then we leave, that treaty no longer applies... Is it now the case that UK clubs are going to have to start paying transfer fees when attempting to acquire foreign players?
1: Well, not necessarily. As I said earlier, Article 50 um, doesn't immediately trigger a departure from the EU. But unless there's another agreement otherwise, then it it will mean that uh, the UK will no longer be a member of the EU after the expiry of the two-year period. But the rules which apply in this area have actually moved on quite a lot since Bosman. So, um, for instance, if the UK were not to be in the EEA, they could in the future, be treated by other EU member states as the same as any other, they tend to be called third country states. Yeah. So um, essentially the UK might find itself um, in a similar position to the Ukraine um, in uh, that Shakhtar Donetsk case, the Matsula, yeah. Matusulam case. <laughs> now, <laughs> w- w- what leaving the EEA would do um, is potentially to enable the FA or other sporting associations to actually press ahead rather more with what have been called homegrown player rules. Um, now, the problem that's always um, been for those rules is that um, EU free movement law prohibits them. But also, in this jurisdiction, they would al- also have problems with uh, UK nationality discrimination law, so under the Equality mm. Act. So, actually, for a full relaxation of the position, um, an amendment of the Equality Act 2010 would actually be needed, mm. as well as withdrawing from um, from EU free movement law.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I guess just to add to that and hone in on, on Bosman, I mean, as Catherine alluded to, it's a very much a seminal case, um, you know, from from a sports lawyer's uh, perspective. And it, it obviously, I guess, confirmed the application of, of uh, EU law, competition law, uh, free movement uh, law to the sports sector. The sports sector all of a sudden wasn't uh, a special case. Uh, and I guess, you know, the Mecca Medina case also falls into that category of dispelling the myth of the specificity of sport. Absolutely. Albeit, I'm sure we could all sit here and, and, and argue uh, the contrary, um, as well, um, but yeah, just going back to the principle um, of, uh, of Bosman rather than the case itself, you know, the important point here is that for decades, sport in the UK has been underpinned by UK, uh, EU law. Yes, we're going to have to think about new rules and new ways of doing things going forward. But the reality is the game, uh, sport. Um, has adapted to these eu laws bosman being a good example and the clock isn't going to be turned back yeah, nor, it's, in it's, my view
0: it's what people know it's what people the environment everyone works in exactly
2: and on that point i mean bosman as we know has been applied a number of times within within this jurisdiction um campbell to arsenal Ings to liverpool McAllister to liverpool sturridge to chelsea to name a handful of examples now of course in theory Bosman could cease to apply, but I'm pretty confident we won't be returning to a status quo. The, the application of Bosman, the application of, of, of EU law, I mean, it's already embedded. But the, the point is, its applicability or otherwise is, is almost irrelevant. I don't think we're going back to those days, irrespective.
1: The key point is that the UK would become a third country rather than an EU member, unless yes. there's an EEA deal that's done. Yes, and I
2: think that will be particularly important when we get on to talking about Article 19. Well, let's so do that think-
0: then, shall we? Article 19 of the FIFA rates... On um, the of transfer of players, Article 19 says uh, international transfers are only permitted uh, for players over the age of 18, save for limited exceptions, but one of those limited exceptions is if the transfer takes place only within the EU or EEA, and in that case the age criteria is reduced to 16, so you can have 17-year-old French players coming to the EU, but you can't have 17-year-old Nigerians, mm. for instance. But well, without the benefit of that EU-slash-EA exception, we're not going to get 17-year-old French players either, and, you know, there's a whole list of Belgrade is is, is, a, is, a, is an obvious one. Um, you could name hundreds, I think, of EU players who've come before they're old enough to buy a pint of beer. Yeah. Um, is it all going to change, Catherine?
1: Um, It might do. It'll be really interesting seeing actually how this plays out. Um, Now, it might possibly increase calls for a relaxation of the age limit on transferring youth players from all third countries, potentially. Mm -hmm. But this is actually quite controversial, particularly in these modern times when we've become so much more aware of the risks uh, of um, bringing child sports talent over and also particularly the risk of accidentally child trafficking. Um, And I'd expect the FIFA to take the lead on, on this if it were to happen. But I think um, a bit like with science funding, the impact of Brexit might actually start to bite rather before Article 50 is triggered. Um, so a UK-based team might actually be less likely to scope out young EU-based tech based talent if they anticipate that come Brexit it may be more expensive and risky to actually sponsor that individual mm-hmm. under Tier 2, which mm-hmm. they'd have to do if they're a third country um, player at the moment. Now, it has the potential to incentivize clubs to develop homegrown youth talent potentially or actually to buy sort of fully grown players off the transfer market. Mm. What do you think, Andrew?
2: Yeah, look, I mean, this is, um, you know, for me, probably the most interesting but arguably, you know, one of the the, the biggest uh, concerns uh, with with Brexit vis-a-vis football in this country. I mean, for me, it's pretty straightforward. you know, subject to the negotiations, Brexit means that clubs here would no longer benefit from the, the exemption. As Catherine said, the, the regulators, FIFA, would have to take the lead uh, on this in relation to potential third-country exemptions, but I'm not entirely convinced that would happen. But I think let's you know, that, drill into why this is, this is so important. Um, I think there are uh, around or about 70 to 80 youngsters currently playing for Premier League, uh, under-18 teams, which uh, are applicable, mm-hmm. shall we say, uh, and indeed, some of these players will end up being top players. And the loss of the Article 19 exemption would put Premier League clubs at a significant disadvantage in relation to, the, to their European counterparts. You know, Certainly investing heavily, and Catherine alluded to this, investing heavily in youth is, I guess, football's ultimate low-risk, high-reward uh, talent acquisition strategy, if that's the right turn of phrase. And having to wait that extra two years you know, to access that market uh, would be a blow to the talent pipeline. And has been absolutely fundamental to Premier League clubs, and indeed the success uh, of uh, of the Premier League. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this uh, plays out, um, and I think it's going to be one of the, I guess, the inverted commas, crux points yeah. um, over the next couple of years. And as
0: you said, something that was not really discussed mm. in the months coming up to coming up to Yeah. Months.
1: Although all the Premier League clubs did set, did come out in favour of Remain yeah. during the campaign. Yeah.
0: During the campaign, a lot of what was said was, was focused on the idea of, well, we're going to set up a new points-based immigration system, an Australian-style system for people coming into the, in the UK. So Catherine, what, I mean, what, how does that affect us in the sports world?
1: Well, for, for non-EU workers, the UK's had a points-based immigration system since 2008. Mm-hmm. And there's a special category for sports people under um, what's called Tier 2 of that mm-hmm. points-based system. Uh, Now, under Tier 2, a club needs to sponsor any Tier 2 worker coming to the UK, and the Home Office have very strict compliance rules um, for those sponsors, and it also frequently carries out enforcement visits. Now, the Home Office has the power to suspend a Tier 2 licence immediately and to revoke it with immediate effect subject to there being a um, judicial review and applications for interim relief. Now, uh, we're a major football club to have a large number of its players, particularly its good players, on Tier 2 visas. Uh, but then had an enforcement visit by um, the Home Office and faced suspension of their tier two licence days before a really major game, mm-hmm. the impact would be absolutely substantial. Now, I imagine they'd need to apply very quickly to the Administrative mm-hmm. Court for Interim Relief, um, but such applications are not particularly stri- straightforward. Now, outside of the, the sporting sector, there's actually a case pending um, in the Court of Appeal at the moment called Raj and Noel, um, which is about tier two sponsor. The um, status and uh, when it can be um, when it can be revoked, but the High Court judgment in that case gives the Secretary of State for the Home Department a very wide area of discretion um, in which to exercise their powers, and emphasises that this is a very very light trigger approach. So the, the Home Office need only have a suspicion; that suspicion need not necessarily be true
2: um,
1: that the Tier Two rules have been have um, been breached. So to date, most of the tier two case law has been about um, small restaurants, IT companies, and care homes. But post Brexit in the sports sector, um, if again there isn't an EEA deal done, I can see for the scope for a really rapid development of actually very high stakes litigation.
0: Andrew, how do you see this playing out on
2: the ground? Well, I think we've, we've um, we might be single-handedly terrifying chief executives up and down from down <laughs> the land. But that you know what Catherine the point Catherine made about. Um, Tier two is is really important, and, and this is clearly another very important um, you know discussion point. I mean, you know, I, I've read you know commentary and narrative that it's a foregone conclusion that the current you know work permit rules, which Catherine just alluded to, which apply to non EU players, will all of a sudden apply to, to yeah. EU players. You know, for me, this is this is guesswork, and arguably not particularly educated guesswork at that. You know, the fact is we won't have any certainty on any of this until Brexit is signed and sealed, but we can at least form a view. And what we do know is it is the UK government's priority to benefit um, from tariff-free uh, trade. Uh, and it's inevitable that to get to that point there will need to be uh, concessions and the likely concessions will revolve around free movement because you know, EU countries will want to protect the rights of their of their citizens, yeah. you know, it's interesting to kind of trying to trying to crystal gaze this. I suppose we could be looking at some sort of tiered uh, immigration approach. The strongest restrictions to, continuing to apply for non-EU uh, players, um, and also pending these, and perhaps pending these these negotiations, a second, uh, I guess, quasi midway category could be developed, whereby EU players will be in a more privileged position because of the concessions uh, that the UK government uh, will inevitably have to make. On various issues, but in particular, uh, free movement.
0: A special, a special place for EU players, even though we're out of the EU. Like, Tier one point five or something. Tier one point five. <laughs> yeah. Catherine, what do you think that could work?
1: Um, possibly, I suppose um, for entry clearance at the moment for non-EU nationals. Not all third countries are treated identically, um, mm. so that's something which I would have thought that the UK could implement without having to seek agreement from the rest of the EU on. Um, because um, yeah,
2: that's what Portugal does with South America, for example,
1: isn't it? Well, it, it, um, the, the UK has something called a white list for dealing with, um, for yeah. instance, asylum applications and, and so on. And again, with entry clearance, things are dealt with yeah. separately. But I I can understand why individuals in particular uh, are considerably worried at the moment, particularly about the issue as to when Article 50 is triggered and what that might actually mean for their right to residence or their right to apply for naturalisation in this country. Mm -hmm. And the two are not treated identically. Now, in terms of residence under the EU Citizens' Rights Directive, an EU citizen who is a worker... Um, and has the right to reside in the United Kingdom for a continuous period of five years, gains the right to permanent residence and can mm-hmm. apply for a permanent residence card. Now, there's various exceptions where they can do it more quickly, but they're very rare and unlikely to uh, apply in the sports sector. Um, so someone who is, for instance, has, for instance, been an EU national player for a club in the UK for the past two seasons will be midway through accruing that right. And I imagine that they will be very carefully watching the clock as to when Article 50 is actually triggered. Mm. Now, in terms of nationality, a person who's lived in the UK for the past five years has a right to permanent residence um, as an EU citizen for at least 12 months before they make a naturalisation application and hasn't been out of the UK more than a certain number of Um, of days, it's currently 450 days and can show that they're of good character so no no drunken, loutish um, nights out um, uh, uh, allowed. They're allowed to apply to become British citizens. Now of course in the sporting sector uh, this route has always traditionally not been actually that that attractive for some people, particularly as um, there are certain countries that don't actually recognise dual citizenship, so if someone applies for naturalisation in the UK it means that they can't then, uh, can't then play for their national yeah. team mm. when it comes around for Euro 2016 or the World Cup which of course is something which um, often people want to have the opportunity to be able to, to play in. So in almost all other areas apart from perhaps sport, um, I've certainly heard on the grapevine that it's becoming very popular for people to be wanting to put applications for naturalisation in But of course, if someone's actually an EU citizen, but they haven't actually got round to applying for their permanent residence card yet, they'd still have to wait 12 months after acquiring permanent residence um, in the UK before they can make their naturalisation application. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay.
0: Well, I mean, whatever the case, we're in a state of flux. Time and tide wait for no man. We've got a a transfer window. It's not all that far off. What immediate impact do we think Brexit will have on the next transfer window?
2: Really, a really good question. I, I think, look, I think there will be an impact simply because it's going to be a sort of a, an overarching shadow in, in the background, yeah. isn't it? I mean, I suppose there's two schools of thought. Um, as the consequences are not yet known, um, it's possible that. Um, teams may be more aggressive this summer in terms of trying to sign players there's a certain logic in that if you don't know what's going to happen in the future well why not get your uh, your players your key targets under lock and key now perhaps on the basis that they're not going to be any sort of retrospective application and yeah. mm. um, that type of you know Barcelona model of, of, of signing players before the proverbial um, you know uh, embargo uh, gets put in place yeah. Um you know or it's it, I suppose it's also possible, there'll be a period of restrained activity until the players, the agents, the clubs, the Premier League, and indeed everyone involved in football is sure about what's going to happen. But, but my uh, instinct is it's likely uh, to, to be uh, to be uh, the, the former, uh, simply because you know, you know, if you're a if you're a manager of a football club, if you're a chief executive of a football club, well you have to you have to plan for for, for next season, and you can't let. Um, these issues, albeit that they're big issues and important issues, um, I guess hold that back. Um,
0: okay, Catherine, if you were a betting woman,
2: any concrete prediction from you for the medium term?
1: Well, I suppose I'm not sure I'd call myself a a betting woman. Other than the the points that we've already covered, Graham, interestingly, I suppose, online gambling and gambling in particular, um, it it is one of those industries actually where a lot of the money is made in sport. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the old um, EU free movement of services case law is actually um, case law to do with gambling. Mm -hmm. Now, although there isn't any EU-specific legislation on gambling, um, the Commission has been particularly active in this area of late. Even if the UK stays within the EEA, But isn't in the EU, it will of course be shut out from the negotiating table when that that legislation is likely to be going through the EU institutions. Um, and that'll be quite an interesting test if the Norway model, for instance, is, is gone for. Um, I wonder whether in this post-Brexit world, will, will the UK become a kind of Las Vegas um, sort of home of very little regulation in terms of gambling and try and attract the rest of the world to it? Or will it actually cut itself off and, um, from, from um, potentially a highly lucrative market? Yeah. And I think that's the question which actually is facing pretty much every industry in this post-Brexit world. Is it going to open doors or is it actually going to close them?
2: Yeah. yeah, no, look, I agree with that. I mean, I, th- I think that the, the film and television uh, industry, you know, will, will uh, be impacted. Um, you know, indeed, one of my partners, Jeremy Roberts, in our film and television group wrote a really good article on this, um, a good piece of analysis on this, um, which I'd recommend that all, mm-hmm. all, all listeners, uh, you know, Google and have a read of. I mean, look, like Catherine, I'm, I'm not a betting person. I'm not going to start now. However, I'm um, prepared to still offer a relatively robust opinion you know, at least in terms of the short to mid term, and I think there is going to be a moratorium a moratorium in the short term, possibly extending to, to the medium term, simply because the exit negotiations are going to take um, a relatively long period of time, possibly longer than anticipated. I mean, in terms of how the long term might look, I mean, if an agreement with the EU includes broad free movement obligations, such as those currently in place for EEA countries, EEA members, you know, the current position regarding the movement of players between the continent and the UK will, broadly speaking, uh, continue. You know, notwithstanding all of the, the, the kind of key points we've made today, I think it will, broadly speaking, uh, continue. Perhaps the most interesting area made the long term will be, you know, Catherine touched upon it earlier, the issue of homegrown player quotas, yeah. and perhaps that understandable conflict between... Um, you know the, the FA is the guardian of, of grassroots football and the guardian of the national team versus the global brand that is the Premier League and yeah. the importance of of um, you know player talent influx into the Premier League. Mm-hmm. Um, finally, I just want to make one last point. Um, you know this obviously isn't um, just a football issue. The col pack ruling uh, has obviously been a big issue yeah. for uh, for cricket for for a number of years. You know, the England and Wales Cricket Board have done a terrific job in, in lobbying to put in place. Restrictions which have turned the, the flow of call pack players into something of a trickle, but it'll still be an issue for cricket, and perhaps the ECB will be um, one of the happier governing bodies. I mean, I think there was one county cricket match in, a number of years ago which in which, um, in which a county fielded 10 call pack players, so uh, 10 players on the field of play. Um, none of whom were eligible to play for England so you can mm-hmm. see how you know, that particular issue um, you know, has been a problem for cricket I think rugby is in a slightly different space and, and, and will have some challenges if there are going to be free movement restrictions certainly if you look at the premiership regulations the Pro 12 regulations yeah. I think the current rule is that you can only have uh, two foreign players in your match day 23 but the definition of foreign players obviously doesn't include uh, call packs or, or European players if Free movement restrictions were to be put in place, then all of a sudden the regulatory framework would would flip on its head, uh, and that will be really interesting, or it'll be a key issue for, for uh, rugby union uh, in particular to keep an eye on. I'm sure the governing bodies will be will be observing that closely, as will the league. Certainly, the Pro 12 league is a particularly fascinating case study because that's a that's a sports league which uh, transverses. Uh, different countries, and of yeah. course, it will uh, now be uh, countries, uh, some of whom will be in the EU and some of whom uh, won't. Um, obviously, the island of Ireland being a particularly interesting case yeah. study when mm-hmm. you boil it down, but maybe let's not get into to Irish politics here. We'll, <laughs> leave, we'll leave that to a specialist constitutional podcast. That'll be brilliant because Ulster is obviously will be technically, or part of Ulster will be outside of the, the EU mm-hmm. because there's obviously mm-hmm. six counties in Northern Ireland, nine yeah. in Ulster. And obviously the other um, three provinces of Ireland will yeah. be in the EU, but uh, goodness, goodness knows how that's going to play let's, out.
0: Let, let's stick to law, not to politics and much yes, less Irish
2: I politics. Think, uh, that's uh, yes, best sidestepped, I think. Well,
0: thank you so much, um, Andrew, for coming in to talk to us. Pleasure. Um, promise to come back in two years to review everything we've
2: said and tell us why it's all it's all being superseded. <laughs> yes, yes, all of the uh, yes, the predictions. Uh, yeah, we'll be able to assess how. how that's played out
0: can people follow you on Twitter?
2: Uh, yes yes they can um, like in this what's my Twitter handle Andrew Nixon 100 but also follow at share the sport which is much more uh, interesting and run by my colleagues back in the office and uh,
1: Littleton Chambers is also on Twitter Graham what's our handle?
0: Um, our Littleton Sport handle is at Littleton Sport imaginatively enough I am at Bar Graham and you are not yet on Twitter I am not yet on Twitter when's that going to happen?
1: <laughs> maybe sometime
0: well that's that's the big event coming up in the near future thank you to you both pleasure thank you thank you for listening and goodbye